session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talaqui. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Talaqui, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get started, let me first thank the guests I had on Monday night's show, Andrea Michelle Smith and Shaheen Talabrezov from the Pembroke Taparelli Arts and Film Festival, which is taking place this weekend in Los Angeles, starting tomorrow, Thursday, November 1st. Um, you can get more information at ptaff.org. Um, and because I had those guests on Monday's show, I did not get to do the book of the week or the book review on Monday, so I'll be doing that today. But before I start with that book, I wanted to announce the book for this week. It is The Courage to be Disliked by Ichiro Kishimi and Fumetaki Koga. The Courage to be Disliked, the Japanese phenomenon that shows you how to change your life and achieve real happiness. And I really liked the title, The Courage to be Disliked. And I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but I've been mentioning oftentimes I end up doing that. So this one I judged by its uh, title and uh, just started it and it is pretty interesting written in a perspective of a philosopher talking to a youth about this idea of how everyone can change and how we can uh, achieve real happiness. So I'll be sharing that with you on Monday night's show. But on to another book whose title I liked, uh, The Road to Character. That's the book I'll talk about today by David Brooks, The Road to Character. And I liked the title and what I read a little bit before reading the book, this idea that focusing on building our character, which is something that most people have lost sight of, is something I think is very important. Building on who we are and creating the best version of ourselves is something we want to do, but oftentimes people instead are looking for ways to get attention or to get success or fame and losing sight of what might be more important, which is building character and also building relationships. Um, So the beginning of the book, David Brooks mentions something I thought was interesting is that he was thinking about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. So resume virtues are things that you obviously put on your resume, but that make you someone who looks good for the job market and they contribute to external success. Whereas the eulogy virtues, as he puts it, are deeper. And these are the ones that people might talk about at your funeral, which is more about your character things about being kind, brave, honest, faithful. And when you think about eulogies, people are usually talking about these kinds of things. They don't say, um, you know, the person you excel or had three years of experience doing this or that. They talk about what a good friend the person was or a good husband or wife or how kind they were to people. These are the things we tend to remember people by, but we tend to forget and not remember that maybe these are things we should be focusing on, not just some external 
characteristics. And he also mentions this concept that is based on uh, this idea from the idea that there's two accounts of the creation of Adam, and there's an Adam 1 and Adam 2. And as he puts it, Adam 1 is the part of us, and these are two sides of our nature, who's more focused on building, creating, producing, discovering things, and that's more towards the outer success, whereas Adam 2 wants to embody more ideas of the inner character and develop who we are from the inside, showing things like humility and becoming a good person. And that we sometimes have this battle between this Adam 1 and Adam 2, wanting to look successful or appear good on the outside, um, and also trying to grow more from the inside. And the way he actually goes through the book, it's much more narrative, going through stories of different people that he thinks have embodied um, a good character or have striven to achieve a good character and the different ways they've gone through that. So he shares uh, St. Augustine, Samuel Johnson, Dwight D. Eisenhower, George Eliot, and, and a few other people that he goes through their lives showing what they went through to achieve good character. And what you usually see is that to develop a good character or to become a better person, very often people have to go through struggle. You have to go through hardships. And in all of these people's lives, you see that these people have gone through some kind of struggle or challenge, but rather than that struggle or challenge making them worse or weaker or making them some kind of victim, it actually helped them grow and become a better person. And in our own lives, it's important to do that too and recognize that very often if we want to grow as a human being, we have to embrace the challenges that we face in our life and realize that the idea that we sometimes have of always feeling good, and it's something he mentions, like this hedonistic idea of being happy, as in feeling good in the moment and doing whatever feels better, that usually is going to take us down the wrong road. That won't be the road towards building a strong character. It's going to be the road towards feeling good in the moment, but in the long run, probably not developing who we are as a person and not leaving, leading to a what we might call contentment or fulfillment, something that I think is much more important than happiness in the moment. Or sometimes we can define happiness also in two ways. There's the happiness of feeling good in the moment, almost like similar to pleasure or just a feeling good type of happiness. And then there's a happiness where you are happy with your life. You're content with the way you've lived your life and feel that you've lived a fulfilled life, which I think is what we all should be striving towards but unfortunately, there's a lot of pressure pushing us towards the first one, just feeling good in the moment. Do what you like, treating yourself and, um, you know, indulging in whatever it is that you like in the moment because that's what you deserve. And, of course, we do deserve to feel good. I'm not saying I'm against anything that feels good, but I mean that we also have to focus on building ourselves, which also very often means not doing the thing that feels good in the moment. Uh, very often we like to think of something like discipline as something either you have or you don't have. So people say, oh, I don't have willpower or I don't have any discipline or I'm just lazy. And that's not really true because we aren't just black or white, lazy or not lazy, disciplined or not disciplined. Discipline is something that you can grow and develop and also willpower is something that you continually have to work on and work towards. No one has perfect or unlimited willpower. We all slip. Sometimes we all can be procrastinators or seem lazy or not get our work done for periods of time. And as I've talked about in some of the recent books, that isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes taking those breaks can actually lead to creativity and 
thinking about things in a new way, but we, we can't think of ourselves as either we have something or we don't. And same goes with overall character. It's something we have to build. It reminds me of, uh, there's a old parable where a, a boy and his grandfather are talking, and the grandfather says, within you there's two wolves. One wolf um, represents all that's bad of humanity, basically, or humans, that you can greed, evil, aggression, anger, selfishness, and all of those types of things. And the other wolf is honesty, integrity, kindness, love, and all those beautiful things. And the grandson says, which wolf will survive? Because these two wolves are fighting within each of us. And the grandfather says, whichever wolf you feed. So we find that in building character, it's not some big, huge step we take or um, some kind of technique we learn that builds character, but small steps we take every day in feeding that wolf that is the good parts of who we are. And that's something that he talks about in this book is, in a way, something that I definitely agree with. If you want to call it good or evil, bad, good, we all have within us the potential and the capacity to be good or bad or to do good and do bad. But depending on what we cultivate, what we invest our time in, whatever we repeat to do, that's who we become or what we go towards. And it's up to us to choose which path we want to take when it comes to that. So it's important to realize if you want to be a better person, it's something that you don't just do once. It's something that takes time to develop and you have to continue to invest time in that. And that's something that you see in these different people that he outlines uh, in this book, that you see them working continually on themselves and towards something. And almost always they had to go through a challenge that made them face the demons or the weaknesses within themselves. And that's something we all have to be willing to do. The road to a stronger character almost always will involve going within yourself, finding those weaknesses, insecurities, um, bad actions, behaviors, addictions, whatever they might be that push you towards not making the best choices and decisions and fighting them yourself, fighting those inner demons, overcoming them. And that's not something that you defeat usually and you're done. It's usually also a continual process, but trying to overcome those inner weaknesses, that's how we develop character. And he touches on this uh, last thing I want to talk about that near the end of the book um, about in a way social media and it's definitely not definitely all bad but one thing i've noticed and i've talked about recently as well is this idea that what i don't like about social media is that it pushes us more towards the superficial in almost every way uh, from looks and of course people putting unattainable types of body image and beauty sometimes even photoshopped or even if not the extremes of people you know, that everyone, then everyone is comparing themselves to some extreme and we're almost always going to measure up short and not feel good about that. So it's superficial in that way, but even in how people present themselves or relationships, you'll see posts and it's a 10 second video of a couple being cute together and people say relationship goals. That's, they think that's the relationship I want when it's really just a 10 second interaction, which might be nice, but it doesn't mean it's the basis or as part of a very good, healthy, and strong relationship. It just looked nice for a second. Or people try to present themselves as good people. And what I think in reading this book, what came to me was this idea that character, a good character, is not something that can be seen in social media, in a post, in a picture, 
in a 15 second or one minute video. You don't really get to see a good character and you can't really tell who someone is on those very surface level types of posts, but it's, we're pushing ourselves towards that to just look good to people. Oh, this person seems very nice or kind because they did this thing and I saw them posted on social media or they were holding their partner in this way. So they must be a faithful or good person, but true character is shown over the long run. And it's seen by the people who are closest to you over time, repeated actions. If you are a kind person, it's not just one picture or one action you took that then gets posted. It's something that you adopt every day in your interactions with everyone that you interact with. Most of the time, out of the lens of a camera or uh, social media in any way. It's just something that you're doing every day. So the road to character to me means that we have this inner moral compass and we definitely can talk and learn from others and absolutely we should. He mentions that in the book too and I thought it was interesting this idea that people used to read literature and be inspired by the characters they saw in the literature. So it wasn't just reading stories but we'd be inspired by the people in the stories and of course reading about people's lives and seeing how they led their lives can inspire us to live better lives and become the best version of ourselves. But we have to strive towards being a better person every day. And those aren't things that are going to shine and jump out at people. People who are good to others, good to themselves and lead a good life tend to be more soft-spoken or humble about how they approach life. But people do notice. And even as I say that, I recognize your intention shouldn't be to make people notice, but to live a good life because it's the good life. Be a good person because it's a good person, not for some kind of reward from other people or even reward in some afterlife, but to live the good life just to do the right things. So in this book, The Road to Character by David Brooks, um, it's interesting seeing him outline different people and struggles they went through and the ways they turned inward. And very often humility was a big part of recognizing uh, that path towards a good character. And I think it's good for us all to focus on this idea of trying to build character, build those inner qualities, and not just focus on those external ones, because really those inner qualities are what help us develop a good life and also develop good relationships. Uh, so that was The Road to Character by David Brooks. And the book of the week for this week is The Courage to be Disliked by Ichiro Kashimi and Fumitaki Koga. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hello, Mr. Hi. I'm so sorry. I was same time doing the business. <laughs> That's uh, thank okay. Thank you very much for taking. Thank you very much for taking my call. Sure. Uh, if you remember, I called you last week uh, about. I, I said I have three girls, daughters. So yes. six, six plus, nine plus, and the other one is thirteen. Mm -hmm. So the questions were more about uh, my teenager one. So Can I, I stop you? Let me stop you for a second. Are you on speaker? Because the sound is not coming in very clear. Uh, how about now? It's a little bit better, yeah. Okay. And I can still uh, hear myself. I don't know if the radio is on or something. Uh, no, nothing. I'm, I'm just driving same time. I'm talking. Okay, but, okay. But I'm Maybe this is the I, best we can get. Okay, go ahead. So I, you have a six-year-old, a nine-year-old, and a 13-year-old, all girls. Yes, okay. yes, yes. 
And uh, the, the thing is also, I, the problem I have with uh, her, as you know, a teenager, and she's like a teenager. One of the other problems... If you can I speak have, a little... Sorry, if you can speak more loudly, just as loud okay. as you can. Okay. Uh, I, I, was, I was thinking, uh, my question was about if we can... Uh, 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 about she, she breaks with her friends, okay? Like she had a friend... She had a friend last week, uh, I mean, for two years, they used to go sleepovers, this and that, and then suddenly they just stopped being friends. They don't want to talk to her. I'm going to have to stop you. Again, if you can speak even more loudly, we really can't hear you. I know maybe it sounds like it's coming in clear. If you can even speak more loudly, because I can barely hear what you're saying. Something about sleepovers or friends, but I couldn't really hear what you were saying. Okay. Uh, can you give me like five seconds? I'm, I'm talking right now. I'm going to talk to you. Exactly. Okay. I'll go just inside. I'm so sorry about unlike. <laughs> yes, we're, we're all going to get to hear you park. If you if it's parallel parking, we'll pr- try not to put any pressure on you. Okay. How about, how about now? It's a little better, yes. Okay. I'll go inside my office. For this I'm so sorry. Okay. Uh, okay. About this 15 years old girl, so I think that she, she had a friend that she... Used to do sleepover, you know. We know each other's families, you know, but but suddenly, last two three months, she she broke with her friend, and uh, she doesn't want to go anymore. She doesn't have any any friendship with her. So my wife my wife is insisting her to, you know, she has to again start a relationship. And and I I noticed that last last weekend they had a argue on the phone, and they're not friends anymore. So what the question is. Do we have to insist about this? What would be your advice for us about it? So one thing I always try to advise parents is rather than, you know, even the way you said it, should we insist on this? um, It becomes, you know, the thought is usually how do we instruct our kid and what to do or direct them or even force them and what to do? Because we think, well, if friendships are good, then we have to force her to have friendships. And absolutely, social relationships are very important at any age, but especially at 13, they're going to be very important. But rather than focusing on, for me, the idea of what do we tell her and what do we make her do, I think it's much more important to communicate with her and have conversations with her about what happened, what's going on with her friendships, and what does she want. Because if she was close to these friends and then now she lost them, uh, we don't. I don't know if you know why or what happened, but to me, that's more important. It doesn't seem like... Your daughter doesn't think friendships are good uh, or important. Or if she does, that means something happened to her and she's changed. We want to understand that. So for me, it's approaching it rather than a place of what's the right step as far as how do we tell her what to do. And it's more about curiosity and trying to understand what's going on for her. Because clearly, if you're saying she had these close friendships up until two, three months ago and now they've stopped, something has probably happened. And for me, it's more important to try to understand what's happened, and then that will guide the next steps and actually guide her rather than saying, okay, we have to force her to have friends. You know, friendship's not something you can just force or just create yourself or buy online. You have to actually develop friendships, and so it's going to be up to her to make those friendships. So have you guys talked to her about what's happened, what's going on with her friends? Yes, yes, I talked to her. The, the reason that she has, she has that, like, a... Uh... That she's jealous. She she's this. She's you know the you know in their age problems that they have. You know mm-hmm. she's jealous. She's she's kind of like mean. She wants me to. Uh, she has telling stories like okay, uh, we went to you know uh, Hollywood you know, uh, studio. So I asked my friends if I could spend to go 
following when I was back, they were getting low how was that, they were asking for food, they were asking the experience, oh, do you see this, did you see that? But she was like, oh, because I went, you know, in their age. Yeah, sorry, uh, again, I, sorry, again, I, I feel like you're not speaking that loud. If you could almost yell, because I can barely hear what you're saying. Oh, okay. So I was, I was, uh, I was, uh, That doesn't sound I, different. I, it's, it, if you're, are you on, are you in the office now? Okay, because I really, it's a hard, it's really very hard for us to make out what you're saying. I heard something about jealousy, or her, she says her friends are jealous, and you guys went somewhere. Yes, yes, she, she, she goes there, she, she says, she says that, she says, oh, because you, because I went there, that's why you want to go there, you went there, this and that, she says, the, the comments that I hear from her, the annoying, you know, in the, so, I talked to her the, the way that, and I said, okay, I, I mean, I'm not insisting you to go there, but I mean, go be friends with her anymore, but just remember, you you were friends with her together for more than two years. So, this is uh, not easy to break, you know, you you, you better think double twice and talk to her, this and that. So, I, I talked to her, the, the reason is, I mean, in their age, but I'm... I mean, the jealousy that had from her friends. Okay. Now, I, I mean, again, it was hard to make out everything you said, but um, it seems like you're saying things like jealousy or I went here and they didn't like that I went there or they wanted to go there too. Uh, I, I don't know if that's the whole story would be my guess. I would want to understand a little bit more what's going on. And I remember we spoke last week and now I, I'm remembering you said something that she has a much more open relationship with you or it's easier, you feel like it's easier to talk to you than it is to talk to her mom. Um, yeah, because maybe her mom was, I think you said, a little more judgmental or a little bit more yeah. short with her. And I think this is where, uh, although it doesn't have to be the case, but a lot of times it does help that if she has that relation with her mom, being that they're both female, it sometimes might be easier for her to open up about things like this, even though it's not about maybe dating or those kinds of things, but still it might be easier. So I would hope that she could have that relationship with her, with her mom, to talk about these things, maybe she would open up more because it seems like what she's telling you, not that she's lying, but isn't really the whole story, that it's because of jealousy and now I'm not friends with them. And especially like you're saying, at least the way you made it seem, she doesn't really have friends with other people or she doesn't have a friendship with other people that she's spending time with. She does. Okay. So your concern is why did she stop being friends with these specific girls? Okay. Well, I would still ask her a little bit more. I would assume there's more to it than what she's told you, maybe she feels like it's about jealousy, but there's probably more to it than they didn't like that I went to Universal Studios or whatever it was and they said something. I, I don't know. It seems like there's probably more to the story than that. But going back to your question of should we insist, I would never, you, you can't insist on a friendship at any age. When they're younger, you maybe set up a play date, you have a little bit more control, but at 13, you can't force her to be friends with someone. So I definitely wouldn't go the route of insisting. And actually something I see a lot with parents, um, their kids will get into a fight and the moms or the dads will talk to each other and resolve it. So the kid gets in a fight with his friend Timmy and then the mom says, oh, I talked to Timmy's mom, you guys are friends again. As if the, the, the solution is between the parents when the solution is between the two kids. So you can't really solve this problem for her. I would encourage her... First, I'd want to understand what's going on more. I still feel like you don't have the whole story, and she might not want to tell you, but you can still see if she'll tell you more. I do like the idea of encouraging kids to try to resolve their conflicts rather than 
if they have a conflict end the relationship, which is oftentimes what happens, not just with kids, but also with adults. So that part, rather than insist, but I would talk to her and see if there is something there. And if she wants it, of course, she might say, no, I don't want to be friends with them anymore. And we can't force her. But I, I would see if you could open up that dialogue with her of, is there a way of resolving what's happened? Because from what you described, it's I don't know if to you it seems clear why the f friendship ended, but it didn't seem like there was much of a reason from what you told me so far. Yes. Uh, uh, the thing is, uh, once I asked, I, said, I asked her that if you can give me, uh, if, if you want to give me three negative things about your friends, what what are they? So this is this is the one that I remember that she was telling that she was. Uh, I mean, this was one of them. So the other two, to be honest, I, 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 I don't remember them for now, mm -hmm. but I don't want to, I mean, uh, give wrong information. Okay. That's about, about why, uh, the most important was like, like not to insist, so which, which you are, your advice is not to insist uh, to she goes back to her friendship. So that yeah. was very important. Well, I mean, I, exactly. I mean, to me, that's always going to be, especially with friendships, almost with anything, I think, as parents, we have to be careful not to insist fully and say you have to do this or have to do that. But with a friendship, you can't force it. You know, we want to uh, let her make that choice. But I think more for me, it's about having those conversations with her about what happened, what's going on. Can she try to resolve the friendship? And if she can't, then maybe she can. And she's allowed to move on. Maybe she had friends for a couple of years, but now they're being, let's say they're being mean to her or they're not treating her right. So we don't want to yeah. force her to be friends with people that maybe it's not even right for her to be friends. That's why for me, it's always about having conversations and coming from a stance of curiosity, trying to understand what happened more than telling her what she has to do next. I appreciate your time. Thank sure. you very much. Thank you for calling. Take Thank care. Bye-bye. So, you know, this issue that came up and I mentioned it is very important for me because I see parents when their kids have issues or are going through something, they do think, one, what's my role in telling my kid what to do next? But also what they often do is they try to solve the problems for their kids. So like I said, the kid will get into a fight with their friend and rather than talking to them and exploring ways that they can resolve it with their friend, the parents will try to resolve the issue. And say, oh, you know, your friend, your kid said this to my kid and he didn't like it. Oh, this is what my kid told me. Okay, well, I think they both did this. Maybe they'll say something like boys will be boys or whatever. They'll just be friends again. And they just tell them, forget about what happened. And we're taking away an opportunity for your kids to actually try to resolve the conflict and learn that they can face these situations themselves. We don't need to come in and save the day for them. Or even if they have an interaction with the teacher that they don't like. Now we might think because it's an adult, we have to come in and intervene. You might have a conversation with the teacher, but I'd rather you also encourage your son or daughter to talk to the teacher to figure out what happened and not to take either side, but hear the whole story. Very often now parents take their kid's side and think, well, if my kid is upset, my kid has to be right. And this teacher is mean or wrong or unfair or discriminating or whatever we might think. Those things all can be possible, but try to hear what happened first and understand what happened. Teach your kid that even if you got into a conflict with your teacher, that doesn't mean things are over and you have to either move classes or we have to come in and get mad at the teacher. We can talk about what has happened. We can figure out a solution. We can try to resolve things. You don't have to always dislike this teacher or we don't even dislike this teacher yet. We want to understand what has happened. So we want to be aware of the ways that we might rob our kids of opportunities of 
growing and resolving things. And also, again, when we hear about a situation, rather than thinking, what do I tell my kid to do next? First, we want to really make sure we understand what's going on, which means we have to ask questions and have a conversation. What happened? How did that make you feel? What do you think about it? What do you think you want to do? What's the next step? So as parents, we might think our role is to always know the right advice, the perfect advice to have this you know, infinite wisdom to always know what's the right thing to do. But if we just tell our kids what to do, we take away a lot of their ability to grow and face things. And also they might know better than we do because they're in the situation. If you tell your kid, you should start talking to them again. We don't know if that's the right thing or really what makes sense. They might know better than we do about what's the best, best next step to take. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Duakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello, hi. Hi, thanks for calling. Uh, thank you for your show. Sure, thank so, you. So I had a question. I'm a 30-year-old, mm-hmm. and I came to U.S. Uh, three years ago. I'm doing my Ph.D. here, and I have this severe insomnia. I cannot sleep at night at all. Mm. Uh, I took different sleeping pills. It doesn't help. I woke up in the middle of the night, like at 3 or 4, and I cannot go back to sleep. Um, I don't know. My, my my brain is always in the alert mode. I cannot stop thinking. Now, so before you came to the United States, you never had issues with sleep? Yes, I had issues with my sleep too. Okay. When so, I was back. Yeah. yeah. So probably it seems like you had some issue. It got worse with um, maybe the stress of coming to the U.S. Also being in a Ph.D. program, I'm sure did not help uh, dealing with that. Do you have issues with anxiety or depression? I think I'm very worried all the time. Mm-hmm. Yes, I have anxiety disorder. Okay, so that could be something that's contributing to it too, the anxiety. You said you feel like you're always thinking and that's Mm going to make it hard when you're going to sleep if you're worrying about things to sleep. And insomnia is a very uh, powerful disorder and that once we start to deal with insomnia, unfortunately, it can start to build on itself because what starts to happen is we start to build these habits. If you go to sleep now, and you're having a hard night to sleep, what a lot of people start to think is, "Uh uh-oh, is it going to be one of those nights where I don't fall asleep again? And this unfortunately makes it worse. And then you start thinking about, am I not going to sleep? And then it makes it even harder for you to to go to sleep. Because sleeping is one of those things, it's not like you can really try to sleep. Like you can't put effort and energy into trying to fall asleep. You have to kind of let it happen. So when you start Mm -hmm. thinking about it in this way of, am I going to fall asleep? Why won't I fall asleep? How many hours am I going to sleep? you're probably not going to help yourself. It's just going to get worse. Now, uh, and you said something about sleeping pills. Sleeping pills are really only for short-time use. It's not going to be a long-term solution for someone. It it can be helpful, but again, in only a short term. So maybe someone is going to a new city and they don't want to 
be jet lagged because of the time difference. Maybe you can help them fall asleep one or two nights and then adjust. Uh, or if you're going through some really stressful situation, maybe you take it one or two nights again, not for no reason with the help of a psychiatrist. Um, but it's more for short term. So it's probably not going to be a long term solution. One thing I would recommend that you also look into is something that they call sleep hygiene, which is basically mm -hmm. like sleeping habits that can be helpful in dealing with insomnia, dealing with difficulty sleeping. Um, it's things like keeping a regular sleep schedule that can be very important, uh, relaxing before bedtime. So when you're going to sleep, have a routine. Routine itself can help, but things that might relax, whether it's a bath or shower or meditation, reading a book, that's something that is not related to maybe your PhD program, so it doesn't maybe bring up anxiety of what am I reading. Definitely avoiding uh, things like coffee, even several hours or even let's say in the afternoon. Sometimes people think if I have a coffee at 1 p.m. it's not going to affect me, but it'll still be in your system. And for someone who's dealing with insomnia, that's not going to help. You also want to look at your sleep environment, making sure it's quiet. The darker it is, the better. Um, whatever you can do to make that uh, you know, a better thing. And another very important issue when it comes to sleep is many people will think if I'm having a hard time falling asleep, at least laying in bed is better than not laying in bed. I'm getting some rest. Or if I keep laying in bed, I might fall asleep. But actually what we find is that if you're in bed and you can't fall asleep for, let's say, 15, 20 minutes, get out of bed. Don't just lay there, as most people do, because that's just going to make things worse. So it's actually better to get up and, let's say, don't do anything too stimulating or that will wake you up too much, but go, let's say, read a book in another room or just get yourself out of bed. Because what they find is you want to associate your bed with sleep. And if you're in bed watching TV and if you're in bed reading or doing other things that might make you think about those things, it's going to make it harder for you to associate your bed just with sleep and you'll associate mm -hmm. it with these other things as well. So I'd recommend we'll talk a bit more about what else is going on, but look up some of these techniques that might be helpful for you. And they, they're helpful for a lot of people in trying to create the best um, environment for sleeping overall and the best routine to sleep. Uh, have you tried any of those types of things that I mentioned? Oh, yes, I have tried all of them. Um, I don't know, my brain is like, it, it is sensitive to even the, um, like the car driving out, but it is not that big of a sound, but mm -hmm. my brain just make it bigger. Yeah. Have you always been that way? Like we might say you're hypervigilant, like you uh, get startled easily or things... You'll, you'll hear things almost like you said you're almost on alert all the time have you always been that way or is it more since you moved it gets worse yeah since yeah I, you know things like anxiety or uh, things like this will get worse when you're dealing with stress and you're obviously moving to a new country and then being in a phd program your stress has increased but people have a different level of startle response or different levels of hypervigilance so some people, they'll hear that same sound that you hear and they won't have a reaction. But it seems like for you, there is that uh, reaction that you have. So you told me you took sleeping medication. Did you get that from a primary doctor or did you see a psychiatrist? 
I got it from primary doctor. Okay. What I would recommend is seeing a psychiatrist because what might be helpful, and this is not something I can obviously tell you to be prescribed, but an antidepressant, if you are dealing with high levels of anxiety, it could help with that in a way. Sometimes they talk about it takes the edge off a little bit. It might make you a little bit more calm so that you don't have some of those reactions and that your anxiety becomes a little bit worse. Because it does seem like you have a lot of anxiety. And then what happens is that if the anxiety leads to insomnia, eventually the insomnia itself becomes its own thing. So even if you reduce your anxiety, it doesn't mean the insomnia disappears because there's a lot of learned behaviors that are now part of your insomnia, but it can be helpful. So I would recommend seeing a psychiatrist telling them about everything you're going through um, and then also considering therapy that can help with the anxiety and dealing with these things. There's a lot of treatments for um, insomnia that you can find. So if you go to therapists that specialize in sleep, they can definitely help you in, in dealing with your insomnia. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you so much. Sure. Um, so I have um, I have some other problems. I think it was from my childhood when my parents get divorced and I was very dependent to my mother, but uh, she didn't get me. And I was in a very hard uh, situation. And after some years, I developed uh, an immune disease. Mm. which I took uh, steroid for some years, but now uh, I don't take it anymore. But I should uh, check out my blood every once in a while. Um, I think they are all related to what I am now. They can um, be. I Definitely it can be. Um, when you say your mother didn't get you, did you mean that you, you didn't live with her after the divorce? Uh, no, so I was very dependent on her, and I asked her to take me when they got divorced, but uh, she didn't want me. Mm. I'm sure uh, that was very painful um, to go through that. Uh, and even in hearing you say that, there's a feeling of maybe a stability or security that you lost as well with that. So... Um, yeah, that, that's uh, that can definitely be related to what you're experiencing in some way, and definitely the health issues also. I, I would really recommend seeing a psychiatrist and a psychologist to understand what's going on and helping you uh, deal with this. When you say you have insomnia, what is what's a typical night like for you? Do you stay up late? Do you end up waking up in the middle of the night? What do you experience? Um, if I don't take any pill, I cannot sleep at all. But, mm. uh, for example, I took a pill and uh, I go to sleep at 12 and then I woke up at 4 and then I cannot go back to sleep. Mm. Yeah, that sounds really difficult. Then I'm assuming you're tired all day. Do you end up napping during the days or you don't nap? No, I don't nap. But okay. then if I'm too tired, uh, I can go to sleep next day for some time without pills, mm -hmm. but it will continue the same routine. And I don't want to be tired during the day. So sure. I try to take the pills every night. Which pills are you taking? I'm taking Alpozam. But So it's a prescription drug? Yes. So like I said, I, I would obviously talk to your doctor about this, but usually... A sleeping pill is not something that you take every night. 
it, it's not a, it's not going to be good for you long term. You you can build a dependence on the sleeping medication, and then you could almost feel like you can't sleep without it either. So it kind of goes from having one problem to having a different problem. So now your problem is you can almost get addicted to the medication. That's why they're usually only for short-term use, not long-term use. That's why I would really consider seeing a psychiatrist about what you're going through. And if you're a student, usually you can see someone on campus. I would go to the, the psych, there's usually like psychological services or some type of a counseling center, something where you can get some help. And I would definitely recommend getting help because the, the medication is not going to be your long-term solution. It might work for one night, but now, like I said, you have another problem where you're addicted to the medication. Yeah. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you for your call. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. So, as I mentioned with her, sleep is something uh, very important. We, we need it. And also, making a side note, people tend to underestimate the importance of sleep. Or even we show off about how little sleep we need. I know I've even been there and talked about that, that, oh, I can go without sleep, or I barely slept last night, but I'm still functioning okay. And we're seeing how important it is, and more and more research is coming out showing how important it is for us to sleep, and that as adults, uh, there used to be an idea that you maybe need as little as five hours of sleep, but they're realizing even adults need seven and a half or eight hours of sleep to really be functioning at their highest level. And you can tell me, oh, I do fine with little sleep, and I've uh, hearing that, I know I've said that myself even, but you can obviously be doing a lot better if you did get enough sleep both for your physical health and your mental health. So sleep is something we want to take very seriously. And very often people think of it as an afterthought. Well, I have to get everything else done, and then let's see how much sleep I can get to get everything I need to get done, done. But we want to think of it in a way, the other way around, that I need this much sleep, and I have to make sure I sleep this many hours, and then let me fit the rest of my day to to meet that. Um, so it's important for all of us to think Look at how we're sleeping, the amount of good sleep we get. And there's also, it's not just about the time. Of course, that is important, but it's about how restful the sleep is. So if you sleep eight and a half hours a day, but every day you're tired, that's something worth looking into. And being tired, of course, can be from the quality of your sleep, but it can also be from other things that you want to get checked out. But if you're tired a lot of the time or all the time, this is not something you should just accept as the reality of your life. It's something is going on. We want to make sure we're getting enough sleep, and uh, there's a lot of things that can even affect that. As I mentioned with her, the place that you sleep, if there's noise or light, that can affect the quality of the sleep, um, and and even obviously your bed and pillow and all those types of things matter as well. So it's not something we should take lightly. Make sure you're getting enough sleep. I know people hearing this are probably saying there's not enough time. But this is about taking care of your health, both physically and mentally. And we know that even if you don't get enough sleep one day, the next day you're going to be more, um, I don't want to say emotional, because emotional doesn't just mean bad, but in a way you'll have more extreme reactions to your emotions. They'll be going up and down more. And probably all of us have experienced this. When you don't get enough sleep, things affect you a little bit more, the highs and the lows in a way that feels more out of control. And this is yet another reason why new parents 
go through so much is that on top of, of course, having a new baby and dealing with all those big changes it has to their life, they're almost always very sleep deprived. So they feel more stressed. They feel uh, more frustrated, annoyed, irritated. And of course, they're going to fight more because of that as well. And that's something that parents should be aware of. And I know as new parents, there's sometimes no ways around getting a good night's sleep or trying to get a good night's sleep is almost impossible if the baby is waking you up every one, two hours. So I get that that's a very unique situation, but it's something to keep in mind that even when you're interacting with your partner, that if you do feel more angry or irritated, to be aware that you're both sleep deprived and that's going to affect you tremendously. But for those of you who don't have a newborn, don't have that excuse, make sure you're focusing on your sleep and not taking that lightly. It's a very important part of our both physical and mental health. All right, going into another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. So today here in the United States, it's October 31st, which is Halloween. And so uh, you see a lot of people in costumes and especially tonight. You'll see a lot of people wearing costumes and kids going out and trick-or-treating. And usually I take that opportunity um, in kind of a cheesy or cliche way to talk about the masks that we wear or the costumes we wear every day. Uh, because although we might think we only wear costumes once a year, it does appear that all of us are wearing masks every single day. Or we can really say all of us are wearing masks every day. And there's a lot of ways to look at this. One is, of course, the masks we wear for other people. Um, and that's something I'll talk about a bit. But also we want to look at the masks even we wear with ourselves. Because really to, to get in touch with ourselves, we have to be willing to look a little bit more deeply at who we are. And sometimes that means being a little bit courageous in accepting what's there or being willing even to look. So, of course, we, we wear masks when we interact with other people and we might think of it as one mask, but usually that's not the case. We can be different people around different people in different groups, different settings. Maybe at work, you might be a certain way when you're with your friends, you might be a different way and you might be someone else in front of your family. Now this isn't all bad or doesn't mean we're being completely disingenuous if we're being different people. Different aspects of your personality should come out at different times. If you're playing with your baby, you're going to be a certain way. And then if you're playing basketball with your friends, you're going to be a different way. And that's not just because you're wearing masks and not being genuine, but because different parts of your personality are asked to come out at different times. So to me, this is one important thing to also look at, that Sometimes people might think, well, I'm so different here and I'm so different there. Does that mean I'm being uh, not myself? And to me, each person is very complex. So yes, you can say we're wearing different masks, but we also have different aspects of our personality that are going to come out at different time. When we talk about masks or a persona, this is when we act a certain way that isn't really in touch or genuine to who we are. Or if we exaggerate certain parts of ourselves to get attention or to get people to look at us a some certain way or to get the approval of someone or some group or society or whatever it might be, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about 
masks. So being flexible and having, let's say, a masculine and a feminine side, having different aspects of who you are, that's being a full person. But wearing masks when we try to act a certain way, that's what we're talking about here. But I do want to focus more about the masks we wear with ourselves. Because very often people think, well, if I'm with me 24 hours a day, then I know who I am. But this is actually not true for almost any of us. We might think we know who we are, but that's not something that just naturally comes because I am me and you are you. To understand who we are takes some introspection, takes some time, takes effort to actually get more in touch with that. So the first aspect of knowing yourself is the what. What do you do every day? What do you like? What don't you like? What do you say, not say? Are you this kind of person, that kind of person, or whatever it might be? That's that's important. And some people don't even look too much at the what. But more important than that, most people don't try to understand the why. And if you don't understand or even try to understand why you're doing things, why you feel certain things, why you're living your life a certain way, then you're really living your life on autopilot. The unexamined life is not worth living, as Socrates said. We have to look at our life a little bit more closely. Why do I do that? Why do I get angry about these kinds of things? Why do I make these kinds of jokes? Why do I act this way in front of my friends and that way in front of other people? And if we don't get to the why, we're really not understanding ourselves at all. Or you don't really understand anyone. So people sometimes will say, oh, I make these kinds of jokes and they don't want to even understand why. And they'll say, oh, I'm being silly or I'm being this or I'm being that. And maybe that's true, but you want to understand why do I make these kinds of jokes? I work with a lot of couples and they say, oh, I just like to tease my husband in this way, but it's fun, but he gets offended or he's sensitive. And we think it's just about them. But look at yourself. Why do you make those kinds of jokes? If you really love your partner, and your partner says, these jokes hurt my feelings, but you keep making that same kind of joke, what do you think is going on? And if you just stop at, oh, he's sensitive or she's sensitive, or uh, I'm just a funny person, or I like to make jokes, you're probably missing what's actually going on, that maybe you're expressing some kind of anger towards your partner in those jokes. Or maybe you want your partner to feel the way that you feel sometimes. That's something that people very often do. If we're let's say jealous, we might want to make our partner feel jealous because it doesn't feel very good. We want to give them that feeling. Or if we feel rejected, we might actually give our partner that feeling. We might be giving them that. So we want to make sure we don't just stop at the what and go to the why. Why do I do what I do? Why do I feel what I feel? So if someone does something and you get upset, when we feel angry, we it feels like we're supposed to be angry. There's no other choice but to be angry in that moment. We want to ask ourselves, why? Why did what they say say make me angry? Is it really that what they said was really harsh and mean? Or was it actually more something about me that they touched on some insecurity I have or something I'm sensitive to? Or did they act in a way that reminded me of my mom or my dad in the past that I don't feel good about and that triggered something in me? We always want to take a look at why we might be feeling what it is that we're feeling. Because this comes back to this idea that we're wearing masks with ourselves even. We don't really fully know ourselves because we don't want to see what's there. And even you'll see this in therapy that people will sometimes 
try to get deeper or they're even afraid to get deeper in understanding who they are or uh, what they're feeling or what kind of person they are because they're afraid to see what's there. Very often people think, maybe at my core, what if I'm a mean person? What if I'm not a good person? Or what if I'm actually not that smart or nice or I'm not a very kind human being or a very loyal, moral, whatever it might be? We're afraid to see what's there. And to me, what's important is that if we want to try to understand ourselves better, we have to first come from a place of understanding that as human beings, we are all flawed. We are not perfect and we're not supposed to be, and we can't be. And even in the book I talked about today, The Road to Character, there's this idea that we all are broken and flawed and we have issues that we have to work on and we have to try to become a better person. But if we look at ourselves at our core, we're not going to just see something perfect that has no imperfections, that has no issues. So we have to first accept this. I'm a human being and I have some issues. I'm not perfect and I'm not supposed to be. So let's see what's there. At my core, I'm still good and that I'm acceptable and lovable, but there's going to be some things in there I might not like. And so sometimes we'll talk about in Jungian psychology, this idea of a shadow that we have some emotions or some parts of ourselves that we wish were not there. And then we kind of try to put them in the dark like a shadow or try to, to hide them or that we can think of them as our dark side. But what I tell people is you can't outrun your own shadow. You can run and run and pretend like it's not there, but no matter what you do, your shadow will always still be right there behind you. It'll still be there. And so rather than trying to avoid those dark parts of ourself, what we have to do is face them and embrace them and see this is part of who I am. So for example, someone who lived in a family that might have had a lot of fighting and always wanted to try to keep the peace might learn that anger is not a good feeling. I never want to get angry. And that's not a declaration they make out loud or consciously, but unconsciously. They learn that they're going to put away their anger. And so that anger becomes part of their shadow. And they might even think to themselves, I'm not someone who gets angry. And you maybe have met people like that. They say, I never get angry. Now, yes, there's some people who have a shorter temper or people who get more angry, but everyone has the feeling of anger and everyone can experience anger. There's no such thing as someone who can never feel any anger at all. That would, in my opinion, not even be healthy. But there are some people who might even boast about not being angry ever. I never get angry. But it's not that they never get angry. It's that they're so out of touch with their anger and because they don't want to ever feel angry because that's the mask they wear with themselves that I'm this good girl or good boy who doesn't get angry unlike other people they don't realize that sometimes they're feeling something and they don't recognize the emotions that are there and so we can wear this mask with ourselves even that I am this happy person all the time or this kind person or this always nice person and actually nice to me is one of those masks that a lot of us wear to hide a lot of what's actually there beneath the surface, what we actually experience. Now, the problem with the masks that we wear, whether it's with ourselves or with other people, is that it always gets in the way of really connecting with each other. If you wear a mask with yourself, you really can't connect to yourself and you can't even really love yourself because you can only love something that you know. And if you wear a mask with yourself, you can't fully love yourself because you can't fully know yourself. And the same thing, especially with our intimate relationships. Of course, when you first meet someone, your walls will be up a little bit. That makes sense. 
but over time you'll put those walls hopefully down and get closer to one another. But what you'll see is in long-term relationships, some people will never put those walls down. They'll still be trying to have a certain image or look a certain way. And especially in romantic relationships, what you usually see is that people are afraid to show their insecurities for two reasons. One is we're afraid that if the person really sees us, they won't like us or love us and they will leave. So if someone sees my weaknesses or sees me, um, everything, good, bad, and ugly, they're not going to want to be with me. So I have to hide parts of myself because those parts are unlovable. Another thing you see in romantic relationships and a reason why people will keep their their masks on or keep those walls up is that we don't want to show our weaknesses, our insecurities, our sensitivities, because we think the other person is going to take advantage of that, is going to hurt us with that information. And I've heard this before in couples therapy all the time, people saying that I don't want to tell him or her about how I feel about certain things because then they're going to use it against me. And of course, this is a very sad state of affairs for a relationship, which shows that very often people enter a relationship not as me and you together, but me against you. I have to try to win against you, so if I know your weak points, I'm going to use them against you. Or if I tell you my weak points, I'm afraid you will use them against me, so I have to protect myself. And we can't have a true intimate relationship when we approach it this way. The only way people get close is by showing more and more of themselves, by connecting more, by being more open. You're never going to get very close to someone unless you take those risks of being vulnerable, of taking off that mask and saying, this is who I really am. Anyone in your life that you've ever felt close to and really, really felt close to, it was because they were willing to show you parts of themselves that maybe weren't the most presentable. You've seen them cry. You've seen them talk about something they're worried about that maybe they're embarrassed to talk about. You've seen them talk about insecurities or things that have happened in their past that have really hurt them. It's only in these ways that we can get close. So if you're in a relationship, you might even feel good that you don't fight really bad or have bad arguments and think that means it's a good relationship. But a good and healthy relationship and a strong relationship is only going to be as strong as the amount of intimacy and closeness that you have between the partners. That's what's going to enable you to withstand any of the bad things that inevitably come up through life, how much you are close to each other. So we have to take that risk. And I say risk because I understand it is scary to let someone fully see you for who you are, to see the parts of yourself that maybe you think are unlovable or not good. And see that they can love you not despite those things, but actually because of those parts too. They can see your true colors and say, I love you even more now that I understand what you've been through. Now that I understand things that worry you, things that you've had to experience or the ways you think about yourself that maybe I don't see at all, but I can see that's how you feel. And so taking those masks off, first you have to take the mask off from ourself to really get to know ourselves, but then when you're getting close to someone, to really take that mask off and let the person see you for who you are can create the, that beautiful feeling of intimacy that's only possible when we give that person that chance to see us and to love us fully. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 
1-800-273-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Um, someone did not want to come on the air, but I got a message about infidelity, which maybe makes sense on Halloween. It's something that many people are very scared of, so it might be a good time to talk about that again. But cheating and infidelity, uh, something that happens a lot in relationships, unfortunately, but also it keeps a lot of people from being in relationships. Many people, because they're afraid of being cheated on or uh, being in a relationship that ends in that way might even avoid being in a relationship to begin with. So it does make people afraid both in relationships and also in entering um, a relationship. So maybe it is a good time to talk about that. Every so often it does come up and people ask about that. And any issue as big as infidelity and cheating is not something that can be boiled down to one issue. So there isn't one cause only uh, or one Thing you can do or sometimes people want to know is there a way to make your relationship infidelity proof meaning that cheating just can't happen and really it's not not that simple but i do think it's worth talking about so to begin with we can we can even ask what is cheating sometimes people say is flirting cheating is messaging someone cheating what defines cheating and so to me when we look at infidelity or being unfaithful what it comes down to is any way that you break an agreement that's made between you and your partner. Now, it might not always be so uh, clearly spoken. What does that mean? But anytime you break that agreement between you and your partner, because there are people who are in relationships and they can be in an open relationship. So they can even have a sexual relationship with someone else. But that would not be infidelity if the other partner is okay with that and accepts that. So infidelity is something that in a way is relationship specific, because if you are okay with something or not okay with something, that can define whether or not something is infidelity or not. And that could be even worth talking about at times, because sometimes people think um, we're going to have the same understanding of what's okay and what's not okay and what we are accepting and not accepting, but people might have different ideas. Maybe someone thinks flirting is okay, but their partner doesn't. Or someone thinks if they're just messaging with someone, that's not a big deal. Or going to lunch or coffee with someone from the opposite sex or same sex, if you're in a same sex relationship, they might think that's okay, whereas the other person does not. So sometimes we have to communicate about what we think is okay and what we're not okay with and have conversations about that with our partner. Uh, this is amongst many of the uncomfortable conversations that people tend to avoid. But if we have them, we very often can avoid having lots of future pain. So if we avoid the conversation, we might get hurt later on. We have the painful conversation. Now we avoid pain later on, which I think is always the better way to do things. It's kind of like getting a vaccination. You get a little bit of pain now to avoid having pain later on. So you want to talk to your partner and make sure you're on the same page about these things. But one thing that to me is always a way you yourself can think about if what you're doing is okay or not is to say, if my partner was here, would I do the same thing I'm doing? Or basically, would I hide what I'm doing from my partner right now? So if you say, well, I'm just messaging with someone, but you know that there's no way you would let your partner find out or read those messages or you're hiding those messages, that should tell you what you're doing is not okay. 
clearly if you're not okay with your partner knowing, you know that what you're doing is not right. So don't try to justify those things in your head that, well, it's just, it's just about messaging and it's flirting. So there's nothing wrong there. If you're hiding it from your partner, that means what you're doing, you know, it's wrong and that's not okay. And to me, that's already being unfaithful or cheating on your partner in that way. And I do want to make it clear that cheating to me is not just having sex, which is what maybe some people might think. There's many steps before that, that to me would be unfaithful. And again, something you want to talk to your partner about, but also for you to think about. Because I think sometimes people have this idea that, well, if it was not consummated, then it was never cheating. So if it was just an emotional relationship or just flirting or sexting or whatever else it was, that's not being unfaithful. But that to me is not the case. It's something that if you're hiding it, you want to talk to your partner about. Now, another thing that people are very good at is justifying doing bad things. As humans, we're really almost professionals at this, of finding reasons why what we're doing somehow is okay. So if you're an addict, you're, we're very good at coming up with reasons why it's okay for us to use again. Whether it's, okay, it's still the weekend, I want to start on a Monday, or it's almost the end of the month, I'd rather start on the first of the month, or I deserve it, or whatever it is, we come up with a reason to do what we're doing. And the same thing goes for things like cheating. People will say things like, well, I'm a man and a man has to do these things or it's natural for a man to do this or want to do this or um, I'm not happy in my relationship so this is something I need or even I deserve it or I settled for my partner and I'm giving them so much so I earned this now. Whatever else we might tell ourselves or uh, things like, oh, it feels so much stronger, my feelings for this new person. Clearly that means maybe we're meant to be. So maybe there's something more here and I, it would be stupid for me to give up on this. So we have to be aware of all the ways we might trick ourselves into doing the wrong things in general. But even when it comes to infidelity, we're very good at coming up with the reasons why what we're doing is okay. And uh, this definitely we can see a connection to the book I talked about a few weeks ago, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, that usually we have a intuition or an emotional response to, let's say, a moral issue or whatever it is we're dealing with. And then after the fact, we come up with reasons uh, as to why what we're saying is okay or not okay. So after the fact, we come up with the reasoning um, as to why maybe our behavior would be okay. And we're very good at that. So we have to be aware that we're going to be tricking ourselves all the time. And that's not something uh, we want to let ourselves do. We really want to try to take a step to think about what we're doing. But so people are very good at tricking themselves and doing that and coming up with even what they think is a scientific explanation. Again, very often you'll hear, well, men have this need to do this. And definitely, I think to call it a need would be um, misleading. You'd have to define the word need. What does that mean? Uh, you're not going to die if you don't have it. So it's not definitely that kind of a need or you don't have to have it or you're going to have be unhappy. That's definitely not the case. Uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. Is there some kind of desire? Maybe I can accept the word desire, but just because you desire something doesn't mean um, it's okay or that it doesn't uh, violate something or that you can't stop yourself. And speaking of stopping yourself, a lot of times people will say, oh, well, if it wasn't for my wife, I would get to do this. But because of her, I don't cheat. And to me, that's the wrong mindset to have. If the only reason you don't cheat is because of your partner, then you're probably not in the right mindset. 
Now, I know we all would like to be perfectly moral people, and I'm not saying that we all are. Uh, even in reading this book, The Road to Character, I listened to some talks by David Brooks, and they found that most people, we do lie if we're not going to get caught, or we do cheat or steal if we're not going to get caught. It, it is maybe part of who we are that we can sometimes break rules. So I'm not going to sit here and say no one wants to ever break the rules if they really get in touch with themselves. But what I'm saying is that if the only reason you don't cheat is because of your partner or the potential of getting caught, then you're almost cheating already. But what I would hope people recognize is that the reason why you shouldn't cheat isn't just because it would hurt your partner, but that also would hurt you and hurt your relationship. If you're really in love with your partner and want to make that relationship healthy and to work, you would realize that being unfaithful hurts you and hurts the relationship. It takes away from something. It's not just for them that you don't cheat. It should also be for you. So sometimes people ask, if you could cheat and there was no way your partner would know, would you do it? And a lot of people say yes, which essentially means that their only reason for not cheating is getting caught, not because they realize it's wrong or also not because they realize it's going to hurt the relationship. But of course, it will hurt your relationship if you are unfaithful, even if you don't get caught. It's going to affect you. It's going to have an impact. And that's what I hope people will think about or recognize that cheating isn't just about your partner and not hurting them. It should be for you. Now, a lot of people don't care too much about their relationship, to be perfectly honest. They get married and they did it because they were supposed to or because they felt they were supposed to or wanted to have a family, but they don't really care about the relationship itself. And so these people, cheating doesn't seem like really a bad thing because they don't care much about the relationship. But it's important to keep in mind that you cheating is not because cheating is okay, but it's a sign that you aren't that invested in your own relationship. I've worked with people or in couples where one of them entered the relationship almost knowing they would cheat. They expected that when they got married, they would cheat on their partner and that that would be okay. Or they thought that they needed to or they wanted to. And this goes back to what I was talking about in the previous segment about asking yourself why. Sometimes people don't really ask the why very deeply. and They think, oh, well, I'm a man and I need to do this. Or it's part of being a man. And I also hear the argument very often, well, a man can have an affair and have no emotions, so it's okay if he does that. And I have a lot of issues with that to begin with. It's not really so clear in black and white that they would have no emotions. Secondly, even if they have no emotions, to break their word to their partner and hurt their partner and, and of course, hurt the relationship too doesn't mean they should do it. So just because they don't have emotions isn't the case. And I'm sure if you ask those same men that if we scanned your wife and we found that she can have sex without any emotions, are you okay with her having sex with lots of other men because she's not going to have any feelings? And I'm sure they would say absolutely not. So we have to be aware of, again, the ways that we can trick ourselves into justifying what we like to feel and what feels good to us and not realizing that there isn't a lot of logic to it. We think it's very logical, but it really is not. So this idea that men should have affairs or doesn't matter if they do, um, to me, is totally bogus and not something that we should accept. But very often when people say they're going to have an affair or they don't mind having an affair, and this is something I've talked about before, especially as men, they might think it's a sign of strength, that because I'm so masculine, because I'm so manly, 
I have to be with lots of women. It's not okay for me just to be with one. That's not something that um, is enough for me. Again, it's a sign of my strength as a man. But what I usually see is that this is coming not from a place of being a strong man, but from being a broken or scared boy who is afraid to be in a relationship with just one person, to give one person the strength to hurt them if they were to reject them or to not be with them or to hurt them in any other way or to be fully committed to one person. Because if I don't give my heart to anyone, they can't really hurt me. And if I'm with one person but also with four other people, well, if any one of them rejects me, what's the big deal? I'm not going to be that hurt. So rather than it coming from a place of strength, that I'm so strong, I don't need, I have to be with more than one person, it's actually coming more from a place of weakness or brokenness that I need to be with lots of people because that way no one can really hurt me. I'm never giving myself fully to one person, so I never have to be afraid of getting hurt. And also, very often people have a fear of intimacy, a fear of getting close, and especially if I get close and that person rejects me, it's going to hurt even more. So we might think that it's coming from this place of manliness and strength, but again, we have to ask ourselves those deeper why questions of why am I doing that? And even to me, this idea of, okay, it's coming from a place of strength. So let me understand this. You are such a strong person that you are doing actions that hurts the person that you're saying you love the most or you're supposed to take care of the most. So how is that a, a sign of strength? Or what good is your strength if it's hurting the people that you're supposed to take care of the most and make sure you don't hurt and love the most? So to me, this strength is useless and better not had. And it's better to recognize it for what it is, is actually a weakness, not a strength. If you are strong, hopefully you use that strength to help people, and especially your loved ones, make them feel good, not hurt them. It's just if like I have physical strength and then I beat people up that I love, what good is my physical strength? So to me, this idea of it coming from a sign of masculinity is something that we need to question. Is it really coming from a strength, manliness, being strong, or is it actually because we're so afraid of getting hurt that we'd rather keep many people in our life so not, not one of them can hurt us. Or also this feeling of compensating for not being strong that I constantly need the attention of lots of women to make me feel good about who I am. So to me, I don't see this at all as a sign of strength to do that. Now, lastly, I want to talk about this idea people have that, well, cheating is just kind of inevitable. It's going to happen, so we shouldn't think too much about it or worry too much about it. And I do understand that throughout history, this has been happening and it's still happening. And I'm not thinking we're going to stop today or tomorrow. I know it's still going to be there, but I don't think that because something seems to happen a lot, it doesn't mean we can't talk about it or try to make things better or even bring the awareness of something being acceptable or not acceptable. You can call me a moralist or a purist or maybe old-fashioned, but I do think that we can uh, create relationships where infidelity becomes less likely and we can create a society where it becomes less likely. And it might seem like a silly analogy, but even I remember when I was a kid, littering or throwing trash out of your car or when you were walking um, was more acceptable than it is now. It still happens now. I've seen it happen. I've done it myself, I'm sure. But I think I've seen a change in how we look at it. So to me, we can look at something that maybe is happening in the world 
And based on how we make it acceptable or not acceptable, it can have an impact on how people look at these things. Because very often I think people look at something like infidelity and maybe if they're thinking about doing it, they think, well, lots of people do it anyway. It's not a big deal. So maybe it's okay if I do it too. Rather than maybe having that thought of, okay, maybe it shouldn't be something that's just taken for granted as something that happens and I can think about what I'm doing. Uh, there's a book called After the Affair, which can help a lot of people uh, dealing with an affair in a relationship. But I think there should also be a book called Before the Affair, where people look at all the things that led up to an affair and maybe ways that they could have actually prevented it from happening. They could have actually intervened themselves or in the relationship in some way to prevent that affair from happening. Because not every relationship is caused because there was an issue in the relationship, but we know that very often that can be the case. People aren't getting what they need emotionally, sexually, or whatever other way, and they might seek it outside of the relationship because very often they're afraid to bring it up. I've dealt with couples who have had an affair and they might even say they were unhappy about something in the relationship and they'll even say, but what was I supposed to do? Tell my partner they weren't making me happy? And the answer is yes. Not just that your partner wasn't making you happy, but that you weren't happy in the relationship. I say it that way because I wouldn't blame just the partner. It could be something you're doing too that's contributing to how you're feeling in the relationship. But as I mentioned earlier about these uncomfortable conversations, people avoid having these talks. And instead of talking about the relationship, they think they're going to go fix the problem themselves and have an affair and feel okay. And to me, many affairs are actually the result of unhad conversations, things that we avoided in the relationship talking about facing and then it leads to a point where we decide to deal with things in that way. So there's no way I would say to completely make your relationship infidelity proof or cheating proof. But there are things you can do to try to strengthen your relationship to make it less likely from happening. So that involves a lot of communication and talking about what's going on for you, what's going on for your partner and how you feel in the relationship. And also if you do feel that attraction to someone else, rather than taking that as an idea that, oh, that means I must love this other person or be attracted or I should be with this other person, very often it can be an indication that something is missing in the relationship or in something that you're experiencing. So I'd hope people take that step before going that route and thinking they need to get away in this way and take that step to say, maybe it's something that can be worked on and I shouldn't just accept that my way out is through the affair. All right, we're going into our last commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. We'll be right back. to conclude the show uh, in a way picking up on something I started the show with. The book was The Road to Character Today by David Brooks and it was this idea of trying to develop this the inner qualities of being a good person from humility, integrity, honesty uh, and those types of things. And in reading the book it made me think about how parents approach parenting. And very often, especially now, I think that things have changed where parents are focusing rather than 
um, trying to build a or help their child become a good person, they're focusing more on having their child become a good star, a good student, a good looking good on paper. And going back to the idea from the book, focusing on the resume virtues or qualities rather than the eulogy qualities. And so I would hope that parents can focus more rather than thinking that they have to make their kids become good at certain things, to shine, to have those things that they can show off to their friends. My kid plays piano in this way or does this or got this GPA. And more focusing on building someone who's a good person. Now, playing piano, basketball, having good grades are obviously good things. But you shouldn't think that your role as a parent is to make them turn into something good, someone who's just a scientist or someone who is going to shine in those kinds of ways. And your role is actually to help them become a good person. And in hearing David Brooks talk about uh, something, I thought it was really interesting that he talked to someone who was developing all these different programs and schools to help kids uh, develop their character, become better people. He said, which one of the programs really help? And he said that it's not that it's none of the programs that actually help. What helps is the relationships. So the programs that help people build relationships with someone, those are the ones that really make the difference. So as parents, very often we think, well, what am I supposed to tell my kid to do? And in one of the callers today, and I understand that feeling of what do I tell him or her to do right now to, to fix this situation or what's the best thing for them to do next. But as a parent, your role is less about having perfect advice and more about trying to create a good relationship with your child. That's what's going to help them more than telling them what to do or how to do it or what's the best thing to do at this moment. If they feel close to you, if they feel loved by you, if they feel they can be open with you, that's much more important than if you give them the perfect lecture to take the next step in their life or tell them to do this or to do that. Yes, there will be times where that will be needed, but you want to focus more on helping them develop who they are as a person rather than just doing this right thing or wrong thing in an action type of a way. So about taking the right steps and growing rather than taking the right steps to shine and become something on the outside. And I always tell this to parents. They tell me, I want my kid to do this more, do this less, or to not be in this relationship or to date this person or not date this person. And I let them know your job is much less about that. That's out of your control, what your child decides to do. But what is in your control and what you want to be focusing on is the relationship that you create with your child. Because relationships are what help us grow and relationships are even what heals us. I remember working with uh, a psychologist and talking to them about change. Because, of course, if someone is going to therapy, the goal is to change is to improve in some ways very often. I always talk about self-awareness being the most important part of what you get in therapy, but also people are trying to grow and change. And what the the psychologist explained to me is that most of people's problems were developed through relationships, through things they went through with their mother, father, primary caregivers, things of that sort. And what actually heals people is also the relationships. And this is why when we look at therapy and the research that as done is done on therapy we find that what heals people the most is not a certain technique or if the therapist is really smart or really this or really that but the quality of the relationship that develops between the client and the therapist 
It's the relationship that does the healing, not some type of specific technique that is going to do the healing. So as a parent, you should think of your approach the same way. Because to be honest, what tends to happen in therapy is we're very often healing or looking at pains from childhood, things that the parent didn't give to the child or things that happened to the child that need to now be healed. So your focus should be more about the relationship you have with your kids and much less about how you're teaching them about doing this or doing that. The relationship is what is going to count. And we want to make our kids focus on the right types of things. And so this is important because if you tell your kids being a good person is important, but they constantly see you praising people who are beautiful or good looking or rich or wealthy or shine in certain ways, you're giving your kids a message about what matters, who they should try to become and what they should try to be. Whereas you want to have them focusing on different things. If you say being honest is good, you have to be honest yourself. If you want to say integrity is important, you have to show integrity yourself. Or being a kind person is important. You have to be kind yourself. A very common one I see with parents is that they say, my kid doesn't show respect, is not a respectful person. But when you look a little bit deeper, you see that they're not very respectful even to their kids. And respect is a two-way street. If you want to show your kids to be how to be respectful that, or that being respectful is important, you want to make sure you're treating them with respect as well. So as a parent, your job is less about teaching your kids to do certain things or have certain skills and more about helping them become a good person. And I think I've seen this shift happening also because of what we see in places like the United States with colleges where kids are not expected to be kids anymore. They're supposed to start working on their applications from elementary school and middle school to become competitive candidates for colleges. And I think this is really going in the wrong direction because what we should be focusing on isn't growing good learners, but trying to grow good people. And before the mindset was more in this way, that schools weren't just places to teach kids information, but about actually helping them become better people, to help them grow, to learn what's right and wrong and making those right choices more often than not, rather than just filling them up with information. We wanted to develop their character, not just their intellect. And I think that's something I hope will move more towards in making good people, making good boys and girls into good men and women, rather than just making them good learners who can tell us what to do. And this is something that many colleges are complaining about is that people come to college and they're not really developed as human beings. They've learned how to do certain tasks and to shine in a certain way and to look good on paper, but developing who they are as a person is not quite there. They don't really develop into people who look at morality or look at right and wrong and think about those things. They look at what's going to get them the most attention or get them success or make them shine in one way or the other. So this book, The Road to Character by David Brooks that I talked about today, looks at this idea of how we can actually focus more on developing who we are as a person and how that almost always is not going to shine the same way. And so what I see is a lot of times parents are very focused about how their kids look to other people. Is my son or daughter better than the other kids, other parents, sons and daughters? Can I show off about them? And all families do this, but especially we see this in Persian families where there's a strong emphasis on 
being able to go to the next dinner party and show off about your kids. And almost always it's about he got an A on this or she was the number one student or she got this trophy or that or whatever it is that shines in a certain way. But very rarely are we showing that we have pride in how good of a person our child is. You know, my child is so honest that even though something was not easy to say, she said the truth. Or my kid is so kind, there was a new student in his class and I was so proud of him for going and being friends or being nice to that new kid to make them feel more comfortable. We tend to not praise our kids for doing things that are good moral actions and we praise them more for shining and succeeding in a certain way. And unfortunately, that also sends them the message that you get love for performing in a certain way. We might not realize it. We think it's a good thing. Well, our student got an A or a kid got an A. We want to make them feel good. I'm not saying that's bad, but we get focused so much on performance to earn love. And people lose that sense that they are just lovable for being themselves. Every human is worthy of love. And when I look at this idea of developing character and you look at the stories in this book, the different people that David Brooks uh, outlines their lives, you see that at some level they recognize that although there's some bad within them, that they're good if they can develop who they are more strongly. Not just we're good at our core, as sometimes we might think, no matter what we do is okay, but that I have to develop who I am and I have to build on who I am and that humility is something that we want to strive towards and something good. So to me, my advice to parents is always create relationships with your kids. Don't think of yourself as some headmaster supposed to tell your kids, do this, don't do that, be this way, don't be that way, or give them the best advice. Your role as a mother or father is to have a good relationship with your kids, have them feel comfortable to talk to you, to explore things. And especially that's how they're going to grow. They have a fight with someone at school and they come talk to you about what happened. And there you can help them grow and realize what's the moral thing to do, what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do. Not just you tell them, well, if they said something mean to you, who cares? Just move on. No, that's not going to help them. Talk about what they felt, what they experienced. Also help them build some empathy. Wow, now we know what it feels like to have someone say something not nice to us. So if someone else gets something mean said to them, maybe we'll be nice to them. Or we'll make sure we're not the ones saying mean things to people. We'll focus on how we act with other individuals. Create those conversations with your kids. And as I always say, rather than having a monologue with your child where you're telling them what to do and the conversation is one way, make sure you're having a dialogue, a conversation. Tell me what you think about what happened today. What do you think is the best thing for you to do next? How did that make you feel? How do you think it made the other person feel? Those conversations are going to go a lot further than just telling them what to do or telling them what they should have felt. Create conversations and dialogues rather than monologues and think about what are the goals you're setting for your child. Are they just to shine in school and have certain grades or to help develop them to become the best person that they can be? Are you helping them build a good personality, which just looks good and maybe fun to other people, or to actually build a strong character within themselves? The focus can make all the difference. Before I wrap up for today, I'll announce the book of the week for this week. It is The Courage to be Disliked by Ichiro Kishimi and Fumitaki Koga. Uh, the Courage to be Disliked, the Japanese phenomenon that shows you how to change your life and achieve real happiness. I'll talk about this book on Monday night's show. 
All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show or today's show. Thank you to all the callers and the listeners. And I had Amir here for the first half and Ghazala here for the second half to thank you to both of them for helping me here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful day. 